It's the afternoon of June 9th, we think. <laughs> Could be the 10th. Anyway, it's Robbie and Marilyn again, continuing with the interview that we've begun. This will begin part five. Last, I could remember of part four, Robbie talked about music and where he learned to play the mandolin. Almost heaven, West Virginia, Blue Mountain, Time for the West Virginia segment of this memoir. Life is old song so many times. We're going to skip, whether it's chronological or not, we're going to skip the tobacco store period and the Berkeley period. Yes, we are. Don't look that way at me. That's we're all right. going to go right up to the West Virginia segment. Okay. Because music, you want to know about music. Well, when I moved back to West Virginia, after my wife and I had been separated for a while, and I moved back to be with Tom Rod, and he is buying this land up a holler in Greenbrier County. And it was a steep place, so there wasn't all that much sunshine up in there. And it was wet, wet, wet. But he, uh, like a lot of other homesteaders, got a hold of an old log cabin down in Frankfort, West Virginia, that had belonged to a country doctor. And we tore it down after he bought it. I helped tear it down and re-erect it. We tore a board a siding board off the inside, of course, while we were taking it down, and it was, uh, had a newspaper behind it, 1842. Jeez. President Polk. Oh, part of it was 1846 or something, but it was, there was runaway slave announcements. It was a paper out of Baltimore, mm. I think. It was in this West Virginia cabin. We took it down, him and me and other people helping. There was a lot of other hippies to help all of this. A lot of log cabins got taken down and done that way. Anyway, we put it back up again. And Tom was my old banjo picking buddy and, and on his own land. And he was making his, he'd gotten a presidential pardon so he could get a college degree at home. He had four kids and he homeschooled them all. He made his living as a potter. He had a kiln in the front yard. I helped him score the fire bricks from my father's foundry, steel foundry down in Pittsburgh. When they threw away the fire bricks, 
I picked him up in my one-time flatbed truck, and me and Tom drove him down there. Damn, the whole load shift as we were going across the, the bridge to the Fort Pitt Bridge, six-lane highway going into a tunnel. Oh, no. Oh, my God, and the whole thing. You could feel it lurch. But we made it without the straps breaking, and we didn't lose any of the load. Load of fire bricks and cements. Tom Rod, what a guy. Anyway, music. He, he was the banjo player, I was the mandolin player, and there was another guy named Lenny Perry, who was also a, who was a Vietnam vet, and uh, was born on my birthday. Hmm. When is your birthday? September 28th, 1945, mm -hmm. on this plane. Several hundred thousand years ago up on this planet, I think. I think I came from Maldek, the planet that doesn't exist anymore, mm. the one that blew itself up between mm. Mars and Jupiter. Mm. Yeah, we were bad boys and girls. We messed with the wrong energies in most of the race. Got blown into smithereens. A few of us made it down to Earth, though. We vowed to do a little better. Anyway, vowed to be reborn in human bodies and stuff. But that's a long ways back. Yes. Way back. Yes, it is. I've had dreams about it, though. Anyway. Tom has constructed his kiln in his yard. You are helping him sometimes. Tom, I was living in a little shack in his yard while he was building this log cabin and living in temporary quarters with his family here. So we got the thing up. One log had completely rotted away, and we had to cut and make another one from scratch. In any case, it was up on the second story too. Working with, <laughs> never mind. It was, it was, it was a job putting that log cabin up. But uh, you better believe it was something to remember your whole lifetime long. Right along the stream, it was only about ten feet from the stream, puddling away over the shale, the flat, shaley rocks, all shelving rocks. And mm. So you're working on this log cabin and, the sh and you're looking down into this cool shady stream right next door. Mm. And I bought land right upstream from there. But here's Lenny Perry living upstream playing the bass and Tom playing banjo and me playing mandolin. And we were the back porch string band for a while. And then we were the Three Stooges, but mostly we were the back porch band. And uh, had a radio show down in White Sulphur Springs for a half hour on Saturday morning from 10 to 10.30. Back porch music time. Yeehaw, and Tom would, would give the spiel. I'd give the spiel. Anyway, we'd have musical guests, like this old fiddler that played Fork of Deer, the old drunk named Moe Kaufman, lifelong bachelor, fiddler, funny old coot, and other people, all kinds of bands and guests. And Tom was a collector of folk music, and uh, later on, as I mentioned to you one time, he, uh, he got a gig uh, collecting folk music and putting it on public radio in, in West Virginia. And he collected a lot of people that had never been recorded. Doing old timey stuff. Mm. 
Tom's quite a musicographer too, as well as being right on the right side of the daft issue. But anyway, me and Tom were tight buddies and did a lot of stuff together, so he'll drift in and out of the West Virginia story. But what was I doing? Well, as soon as I could, I bought my land upstream from Tom's, just out of shouting distance. Did you get an inheritance to do that? I did. I got, Dad uh, said he would give each of his four children $2,000 mm -hmm. if we would promise to use it for land or a house. Well, I bought, I used it for the down payment on the land. Not the entire purchase price, but the down payment. Mm -hmm. And Tom, uh, I mean Lenny, I, Tom's land was a separate deal with the same landowner. It was me and uh, Lenny that made a deal with this uh, old sawmill operator who made the deal with us in his underwear. <laughs> Wait a minute, you boys, I just got out of, I just, you know, his name was, oh, what's his name? Flippin', Paul Flippin'. I'll be right with you. I'll get the files out of the filing cabinet. We'll look it up. And, and the whole thing was done with a handshake. That is to say, we were going to pay, for 18 acres, I agreed to pay uh, uh, $3,600, I think. And uh, Lenny didn't have any money, but I had the two grand, and Paul Flippin' took the $2,000. And the rest of it, I paid off growing pot. And so did Lenny. And there was Tom up this hollow who wasn't growing pot, but there was another guy upstream also, mm -hmm. Jay, who built a little shack and saved my life later on. <laughs> when I needed a shelter, it was there. That's another story. In any case, West Virginia music, all right. I learned a whole lot in West Virginia from various, various modeling sources because Tom wasn't my only musical contact. There was this musical family down in Lewisburg, the county seat. Now, they were a piece of work, this family, and I still have contact with Fred Pritchard and his, his brother, Lewis Pritchard, and their father, Fred Pritchard, Princeton class of 54, <laughs> good bass player and piano player, but also the designer of the chemical plant that poisoned 3,000 people in Bhopal. Oh, Union Carbide employee, and anyway, uh -huh. the mixed feelings I have about West Virginia are, are, are intense, and the music that went down there, a lot of it shows s struggle between love of home mm -hmm. and hatred of corporations mm -hmm. and oppression and misery, but most of it is about loving home, home, boy do they sing about home. And I can still understand it. I'm Three or four times in my life, Marilyn, I thought to myself, I'll live here the rest of my life. The first was at New Buffalo. <laughs> Two years. Good guess, Gordo. Next. All right, so I'm living up this hollow, and I thought, yeah, I can live up this hollow quite a while. Well, ten years. Ten years I lived in a log cabin up there. The log cabin I didn't tell you about. But it was called Fort, I called it Fort Gordon because we left I left the log sticking I left the log sticking out on the corner so it looked like an old time stockade or fortress. Uh -huh. yeah. It had a it was a square log cabin, twelve feet square. 
Mm -hmm. Three stories, real low ceilings though. Mm -hmm. Two stories, and the third story was a pyramid. Uh huh. Cheops arranged to the North Star, mm -hmm. exactly the right proportions for the Great Pyramid. Mm -hmm. And with a little skylight around the top, four mm -hmm. little triangles cut out of it. And coming up through the middle was a maple, a small maple tree, about 40 feet high. Coming up through the middle? Mm -hmm. Where were the roots of that tree? It was a cut. I cut it. Oh. It was a mast. Okay. It was a dead I tree. Yeah. I cut a beautiful straight mm -hmm. maple. Oh. And it was, I, it started on the second floor, floor. It was keyed into the joists, which were all chestnut. All the joists and roof beams were chestnut from an old house we tore down for twenty-five dollars. We mm -hmm. got all these chestnut beams, and, and a good bit of the planking was from that old house too. Mm -hmm. Some of it was locust. In any case, that log cabin, I I cut all the logs on my own. Pro I was not one who tore down a cabin and rebuilt it. I built mine from scratch, oh. and I was about the only person that did. It you was, cut the logs? Indeed I did. It's a very steep piece of land. Average 20 degree slope. In other words, you had to use hands and hands to get up the slope in a lot of places. Good okay? Lord. That's right. That was the average slope was 20 degrees. Well, right above the house, I was a smart cookie and I was checking out my forest, which more or less compares to this forest. Well, not completely. It was smaller trees. But I ended up cutting right above my house, a bunch of the trees, and skinning them out with a draw, draw knife right there. Okay. Well, I skinned them out. I cut them in the springtime so that the bark was loose, skinned them out, and they're nice and slippery. And I started with four or five logs, briars and St. John's wort, bushes all over this hillside between me and where I wanted to build the cabin. I'm directly uphill. Couldn't walk through there. You had to go all the way around. But I thought, hmm, I wonder if these logs will skid on through. So I took the biggest one, it was white oak, I think, all slippery, and I positioned it and I slid it real hard, as hard as I could push. Man, perfect. It went down about 25 feet. Oh, yeah. So I pushed another one right next to it. And I, one that was all skinned out of hickory or something. Sure enough, it went down there until I got like three or four down there. And I thought, all right, this will do it. And I worked my way down. I was wearing my rubber boots, my heavy leather jackets, and the thorns didn't get me. And I pushed them down another 20 feet. And eventually, I constructed a slideway for the logs. And I kept on cutting up there with my chainsaw. Mm -hmm. but uh, And sliding them all down there in bunches of four or five. And then I built the whole log cabin right there where they ended up four or five at a time. Oh, I was clever, man. And I used the simplest of tools. I hardly would let anybody help me at all. And uh, the notches I all made with a handsaw and a chisel and a level so I could get the notches exactly huh. horizontal. I wonder how you made those. Every log I worked with was second growth or third growth, which means there wasn't a straight tree in the bunch. They were all curved in some manner or other. Yeah. This was scrub forest that wasn't worth anything to this Paul Flippin, the sawmill owner. Yeah. But anyway, so every log is, is, is bent. So huh. they slid down the hill anyway. But I thought, how am I going to make these notches? 
I'm no good at carpentry. So I just, I put the log across, uh, the, a log across two others, and I let it roll until the bow was down, okay? I just let it roll to where it wanted to sit. Yeah. And then I took my level, and I, I made notches on each end. They were just flat, square platforms. And they were leveled, though, okay? Mm -hmm. I leveled them. And then I turned the log over and set it on the level notches of the log below it. And so here I have a log with a square notch on a square place on a square place, and the log bows up perfectly. It's not leaning in or out. There's uh -huh. no there's no torque. Oh gosh. And so log after log goes in place, and they're all in a little bit of a bow with with branches sticking out and stuff. Huh. Trim the branches off, and so I have this beautiful shape, beautiful shape, subtle. And then I went down to the stream not a hundred yards away with two buckets I don't think I even had a wheelbarrow no it was too heavy and and picked out big flat rocks flat ones and and filled the buckets and carried them not too big actually medium sized and carried them tight till I had a big stack of them in the middle this after I got the logs up and I drove I, will, uh, I just took the stones one by one and fitted them in between the logs what? Yes. that's what you use for chinking? Well, that's part of it. I stuck the stones in there, and then I drove a lot of roofing nails, the kind with the big heads, mm. all over those places. And then I took cement that I made, and I slapped it in there. I threw it in there. I had somebody help me on that one. We had a good time. Feeling like beavers, throwing that cement. And huh. I dyed it the color of this cat in memory of Adobe. I'd gotten some red dye that you could put in mm. So here is this this adobe colored stuff and we're throwing it in there and then smooth it off with big rubber gloves me and Dave Ariano. Anyway, so I had this log cabin all chinked with rocks and cement and that cement is still standing. That 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 chinking's still in there. Hell yeah. I didn't fuck around. And that was my own design too. Did it my way. Stuffing it with stones and then cement. Yeah. Mm -hmm. First, you, you tap the stones in real good, and then you drive the nails. What do the nails do? They hold the cement. They hold oh, the cement. I thought the Otherwise, stones. the cement would... What, what do you think holds it? it it's a, I mean, I've taken the bark off these logs, remember, so they're slick. It's got to have some to hold the, the cement in there. The rocks are smooth, too. That's the nature of the shale rock. They fill up the cracks, right? The they rocks? fill up the most of the cracks. Yeah, that's what I thought. And then, yeah. Now, I would have been warmer if I'd done it the way when we tore Tom Rod's log cabin down in the 1842 one. It was chinked with corn cobs and moss and mud. Corn cobs. Mm. They had a lot of corn cobs. Mm. So here's you're going along and, and the stuff's falling out of there mixed with dirt and stuff. And then they put clabbered over the outside, which held it on mm -hmm. for hundreds of years. Wow. <laughs> uh -huh. Anyway, as for learning music, I must have played Almost Heaven, West Virginia, hundreds of times, because every time you went to a bar, which we did to play music, they want you to play that song. And we were playing for quarters and gas money. But coming back home many a time, we all walked over the big stream in our muddy boots. Lenny Perry, what a guy, carrying his bass on his head. No case. No, it might have had a case, but it was a soft case. He had a five-string K bass, an antique bass, 
and he was carrying it, skipping from stepping stone to stepping stone over our creek in the darkness, man. Sometimes we were holding a flashlight on the bank for him. But if there was a moon out, he'd just skip over. But he was a tough old ex-Marine. Tom was an old pacifist. And then there's me, and this was our band. <laughs> so we had a whole lot of musical experiences there. And this, the Pritchard family, they were our upper-class friends. They hired me back in 1980 to provide the pot for their party. They paid me $300, and I provided three ounces for this big fancy party, $10,000 party that they threw. Wow. But anyway, they were a musical family. Fred mm -hmm. Pritchard and, and Lewis taught me a lot of stuff, learned a lot of stuff from me. They called me the teepee dude because <laughs> I lived in a teepee part of the time, and I went to rainbow gatherings. Oh. They were present at their first rainbow gathering in the East that I scouted for back uh -huh. in 1980, and it took place yeah. in West Virginia. And they came and played naked. They liked to get on the rainbow and take off all their clothes, every stitch, and sang, hang there with banjo and mandolin, and just pick tunes and, and just try and generally scandalize the natives. I met I met hippies like that. In fact, I did it myself one week. Hell yeah. At, uh, or maybe a day or two at Wheeler's Ranch right. in the Well, the Rainbow Gathering, we haven't even begun touched on I that. We haven't even touched on that. What's the first year you went to? 1980. 1980? 1980. Before. Okay, so this, where, this was after West Virginia, huh? Or well, during? it was during. It was during. during. Oh. I lived in West Virginia four years. I mean, that, the second time around, in five years, uh, before I uh, encountered the rainbow. How did you meet Janine and Robert Longo and Neil and Barb? Uh, I don't rightly remember. They were living a few miles away, and I can remember their place, but I guess I spent some time living with Neil and Barb one winter when I was homeless or something. Oh. I think that's... Uh, but, you know, I can't quite remember. Mm -hmm. Janine also, I didn't remember. Well, you, you spent enough time with her that she was able to say to me many times, I learned this tune from Robbie Gordon. Well, yeah. I wonder if I still remember some of those tunes. You can sit swinging on a gate. Anyway, I... Over the waterfall? That one I do remember. Yeah. Date is June 10th, Saturday. Oops, nope, Sunday. Robbie and I are sitting in my pleasant living room at the farm. We're continuing our conversation. We're presently in West Virginia, having met the Bloomfields, the Pritchards, um, the Longos, mm -hmm. played gigs in a local bar and such. Tom and Lenny. Tom and Back Lenny. Horse music. Band. Front porch music back band. Porch. Back porch music yeah. band. Oh, that's a big difference, front and back porch. Oh, yeah, porch. you can let your your underwear show in the back porch. <laughs> right. All right, so uh, take us through those green rolling hills. You want to hear the song? Yeah, sure. You want the I'll mandolin? Take, I'll take Maggie, yeah. All right. Lay for later. You better take a pause on that, though, while I check my tuning. No, I think no. we'll just prattle on and let that be part of it. 
Yesterday we had an extraordinary jam here. Oh, it was about seven of us in uh, Betsy's living room. She was out of town. Too bad. But my son Joe was there. And it was absolutely wonderful. I have to be professional about this. Uh, I can't just play half tune. It's not fair. Yeah. at the jam we had Neil Bloomfield of course we had Randall Jefferson RJ with his guitar and his fiddle we had Lisa with three harmonicas we had Tomas Heikelau with his guitar my son with his guitar and um, that might be it yeah Neil I mentioned him yeah Yep. There, that's pretty close now. Yes, Janine, I hear you saying close enough for our purposes, but I prefer close enough for folk music. I like it. That was a great intro. Now you're you're deep into it. You've built your log cabin. You've talked about that. That's what you're living in. And uh, take us through the rest of your West Virginia days and then back out to New Mexico, if that's the way it went. Well, along about 1980, same time I started going with the Rainbow People, I started digging ginseng. I found out about it at that time. And it became one of my favorite things to do, is to go out and find the plants. And there's a good number of them right up the hollow from where I live. In fact, I learned a whole lot about ginseng from the local folks, and that's a magical plant. Second only to cannabis indica. Mm -hmm. In my book, as far as sacred plants that I use, and that I recommend other people to use, too. And I'd say pitifully few people are familiar with ginseng in this country. Mm. Not so in China. Yeah. In any case, I once found a root older than I was. You can tell how old a ginseng plant is. This one was 39 years old. Mm. 
and I was in my 30s. I was just amazed. What did you do with the ginseng? I ate it. Didn't ever sell it or anything? Never sold a lick. Mm -hmm. Not a bit. Mm -hmm. It's too precious. Mm -hmm. Just ate it. Give it away to everybody and take it. Mm -hmm. Fresh roots. Leaves, too. I'd make tea out of them. Different taste from the root entirely. Lovely taste. The berries, I'd eat them sometimes, but not the seeds, of course. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so a lot of my life seemed to be centered around playing with the crawdads and the chub and the rainbow trout as big as your little finger in the stream in my little series of ponds. Everything was child-sized. Huh? Hmm. I mean, I'm just a kid, you know, and living by myself, I got to indulge myself. Building that log cabin, I wasn't beholden to anybody, except mm. old Paul flipping, but I paid him off pretty quick. For the land. Yeah, one time me and Lenny were driving along, and Lenny had a big bag full of pot, but it was a uh, tobacco pouch, it was a Flying Dutchman pouch, and it's bulging his pocket out, his breast pocket. And we stopped in the dirt road right near because there's Paul flipping in his truck and us. We didn't see him too often. So Lenny's driving and, and uh, Paul and the trucks are this far apart. So Paul flipping says, Paul flipping reaches out and hits oh. Lenny with his hand in the pocket full of, of pot and says, you looks like you got a pocket full of money there, boy. <laughs> you knew we were, how we were paying him off. Yeah. No problem. I mean, yeah. these guys were moonshiners, you see. Were they? Uh, yeah. They were. And they were. There's a story of that. The very place that I lived, there had only been one couple living there. And he was a tattoo artist and she was an acrobat in the carny. But they were their circle farther up where Lenny lived. There was a guy who used to live there named Bolivar Roberts. Bol Roberts, and he had six children, all of them just like Lenny at five, up that hollow. He had six children up that hollow, and he and all the other guys around the neighborhood grew uh, corn and made whiskey. And they would take it across the hills to. Uh, Webster Springs, I think, two counties away. But they wouldn't take any roads, you see, so they wouldn't get caught. Mm. And they took horses and mules wow. and casks of whiskey across the mountains. And Bull Roberts forbade his wife, whom I met. I met the wife and two of the children living up there in the hollow. I mean, they visited us to yeah. talk about the old times and where we lived. Yeah. And she said, they, they'd go off. They'd spend four or five days, maybe more. He... He was, all the woman and child, children were forbidden to leave the hollow while they were gone, while the old man, while the man was gone. Hmm. Forbidden. Couldn't go to the store, nothing. Got to stay home and keep your mouth shut because it's highly illegal, obviously. Yeah. Or it was anyway. Anyway, and she said, and they'd be drinking and shooting and cussing and fighting the whole way there and the whole way back. <laughs> And they'd come back to that little hollow. But there was two revenuers that didn't come back. Not far away at the post office. It was up on a little hillside. And the church was down in the bottom in the, in the, in the uh, hollow. Mm. And uh, the revenuers had their center down at the church. Their little, when they came to town, a couple of tax mm. ATF agents. Anyway, but up the hill, just a little ways in the post office, was where the... Uh, 
the people would get their jugs when they come to get their mail. Somebody would give them a jug. The postmaster would give them a jug. They'd do the transaction there. Mm-hmm. Well, as long as the revenuers didn't try to come up to the post office, everything was fine. But one day they did. Two of them started up the hill. And as they were halfway up the hill, a couple shots rang out and they fell dead. Oh, jeez. Nobody ever went to court. Nobody ever went to trial. Oh, my. And there was no more revenuers in that neck of the woods. Wow. That was 1929. 29? And that's what Bowl told you? That's what his widow told me. His widow told you. He finally probably drunk himself to death. Probably took him till age 80. Tough old people, these guys. The other guy, Lacey Lewis, who also lived up there, and we were talking with him in person. He said, you better believe people like Guts live up here. And he was showing us a road he had made to get to his potato patch. He made the road by taking a little primitive rototiller with the tines in front and, and going into the hillside, backing off. Hmm. Then he'd go forward, go, he'd go sideways six inches, into the hillside back. Wow. And he made a whole road. Along the hill. And, and around the curve of it to get to his potato field. Wow. Anyway, he said, you got to believe people with guts. And I yeah. said, who lived at my place? And he said, this guy Smokey, Smokey Fanning, he was a tattoo artist. And Lacey Lewis puts back his sleeves and he said, Smokey did these. And he showed me both arms covered with tattoos, snakes, girl, mm-hmm. and roses, mom, all kinds of mm-hmm. shit. And that was done by the guy that lived at my house. But that's got nothing to do with my history there, except well, yes. the vibes of the place. Remember, yeah. I was living in a pyramid, too. Don't forget that. Mm. And I was reading all kinds of books. Mm. But I went crazy. I started reading the wrong books one winter. What did you call the wrong books? Aleister Crowley, for instance. Oh. Very bad fellow. Don't read his books. Mm-hmm. You aren't tempted anyway, so don't worry about that one. But uh, I pursued a lot of occult studies in my day. I mean, I made mm-hmm. extensive study of the tarot, the I Ching, the Kabbalah, different forms of the tarot too, but mostly the traditional ones. A lot of the New Age tarots I don't mess with. Some of them I do. In any case, uh, Yeah, well, um, I ended up in a mental hospital in the spring of 81 for three months. But I'm not going to talk about that much right now because my life has been long. And what's of most value to people to hear me talk about? That's what I'm thinking. I'm trying not to be completely just egotistical about this here interview. Mm-hmm. I recovered from the hospital and went back living in that holler. And about the year, God, I can't even remember what it was. About 86, I guess, I was out ginseng. It was a rainy day. This is relevant to my leaving the state or changing my state. Or is it? Anyway, I was out ginseng and I fell down in the rain and hit the same place on my back that had been injured 16, 18 years before. And you had been walking fine before this? Pretty much. I just used a walking stick sometimes when I was out in the woods, but I could use both legs. Mm-hmm. I could walk, yeah. I couldn't have found ginseng without those abilities. So then this one rainy... One rainy day, day. it was almost twilight, and 
rocks were slippery under me in the stream bed. It was just a drizzle coming down, no water in the stream, but everything was wet, slippery. Mossy, round rocks. I slipped and fell down and hit on a round rock, my back right in the middle where I'd been injured some 18, whatever years before. And they never did a fusion on me back way back when. They just did a decompression. They just cleaned up the area, basically, and let the back heal itself. Well, it didn't heal itself. And all these years later, when that happened, I was I was almost paralyzed. I had to drag myself to this house. Fortunately, there was a house that Jay had built. My own house was about a quarter of a mile away, and I couldn't get that far. But yeah. this other shack was there. And yeah. The second story, and I got up into the second story. Oh my goodness! And crawled up there and into a bed. There was no one in the house. Nobody had lived in it at all for oh. years. Oh. I think year, anyway, months at least, long time. He built the place and then he left it. It was just another story. Oh. I don't even know why he left it. You got yourself upstairs? I did. And uh, lay there in bed <clears throat> in the rain and I had a lot of ginseng in my knapsack because I dug about 20, 25 roots that day. So I was just eating ginseng. Did you bring the ginseng back with you then? I, I was out singing, you see. I was on my yeah, way. Yeah. I had the knapsack. But when you fell, you still carried it. <laughs> I must have hit on the on the knapsack. No, I don't know. Well, I was just carrying it, you know. Yeah. That was all I had. It was just the, the, the digging stick. I think I was using the tine of, an, of a deer antler that year. I used different sticks. I tended to leave them in the woods. Forget so how did you how did you get out of that fix? Well, uh, next morning, I was able to uh, sort of stagger and crawl down the holler. Lovely, beautiful day, just like this. Down the holler to uh, my house. But at that point, I knew I was going to need some help because, well, I, it was clear after a few days or weeks, the paralysis went away, but... Um, I got hurt, and, and, and things were getting worse. So I, I, uh, I had to move out of the holler, and I did. I went over to Charlie Herb's place and lived on a school bus that he had that was down the bottom of the hill up to Friars, up to the Red Hood. Mm-hmm. It was at the bottom of the hill, not up to the top of that steep hill. That's where Charlie's house was up there. But down at the bottom, mm. he owned a little field mm-hmm. and a little root cellar type thing, and, and he parked a school bus there, and I lived in that. And I was able to... I'm amazed at this when I say it, considering what I've just told you, but I, I got a job working in the hot tub factory. Hot tub factory? That's right. Mm. Run by... <clears throat> Jewish hippie from South Philadelphia named Barry Glick and his brother Artie Glick, who still lived there and managed several businesses. Very businesslike type of rich hippie. Uh, entrepreneur, rather. But anyway, hung out with all of us hippie crowd. He uh, hired me for his company, which made hot tubs and saunas. What did you do for them? I made benches. I made the benches for... Uh, uh, Mick Jagger's 
hot tub for Cindy Lauper's hot tub and for Dan Ackroyd's mm. hot tub. And were you walking at that point? Yeah, I'd walk around the shop and Barry said, all right, we know your condition, no schlepping. So you're not going to carry the heavy stuff. You're going to get somebody else to carry all the pieces. But I ended up doing it myself. I'd take the, the roller thing. I'd go downstairs, down the stairs. I worked at sort of a catwalk balcony where I worked. I'd go down and I'd uh, go walk down to the end and uh, load up a bunch of pieces two by two that are all rounded off by the milling machine and carry them, go down the end of the of the shop and and sort of shove them up onto the balcony. Then I'd go climb up on the balcony and get them. If somebody was around, they might say, hey, Rob, you want a hand? Sometimes they'd give me a hand. Mm. But uh, sometimes I worked with a guy up there, too, but a lot of times by myself. I had nice air tools, power tools. I learned mm. how to work. And uh, West Virginia, Robbie's working now, and uh, he's making hot tubs parts. And it seems that it's... His boss likes him, apparently, right? Yep. Boss liked me. I liked the boss. I even worked for the boss. He didn't trust, I mean, uh, uh, other than in the factory. <laughs> this was years before he hired me. He, he uh, uh, or uh, uh, Anyway, he hired me to trim leaves off his pot plants, and he didn't trust very many people. He had probably 400 or more pot plants in a steep hillside above his house, which was his property, but... It, he had clear-cut it, and it was secret. It was up a steep hill, four-wheel drive type place. Mm-hmm. But there weren't any helicopters flying overhead in those days, and he had the whole thing covered with trees the size of Christmas trees. Everybody in the neighborhood knew it, and nobody dared go up there, because this was the richest hippie in the neighborhood, okay? He hired, even before the hot tub factory, well, he had the hot tub factory for a number of years before he hired me. But in any case... He said, hey, uh, Robbie, I know you grow some pretty good pot. Uh, how about coming and, uh, and picking some leaves for me off my plants? And I said, sure, Barry, what time? And then whatever. And he said, I'll come and pick you up. I said, and he says, I'll pay you $6 an hour. I said, sure, Barry, gladly. I'd love to pick your plants. And I tried to conceal my, my I mean, $6 an hour. But I'm not that kind of a guy, you know. I said, this sounds cool. I get to see Barry's field full of plants that we all know about that no one's ever seen up close. Mm-hmm. So there I am in the hot sun, very hot day, and I was just right for picking leaves, and I'm just picking leaves with hands. I didn't use any clippers or nothing. Just picking the big leaves. I'm putting them in big sacks, and I ended up filling up six Whoa. big, big burlap-type sacks, you know. Not pla- yeah, they're plastic, you know. Anyway, big sacks. <laughs> And I'm up there, but about halfway through the, and I didn't get all of the field finished either. Halfway through the day, I realized I was getting so much hash in my fingers. I was smoking camels at the time, so I took the cellophane off the camel pack, rubbed off the hash off my fingers into the camel pack, and kept on picking. And I did that five or six times till I had a ball of black finger hash the size of a a large grape. Uh, Wow. Yeah. Uh, about, you know, three or four grams anyway, maybe five of, of really good hash. And anyway, end of the day, six hours, here comes Barry with up the hill, and he's looking all around to make sure nobody's seeing him driving up the hill to meet me. And he says, oh, you got it. Okay, put, put it in the truck real quick. I say, okay, sure, man. You know, what are you going to do with it? He says, oh, oh you know, I'm going to sell it or something. I don't know what he said. I, I said, I, I guess he said he was going to throw it away. I don't know what he said. But anyway... 
Uh, we went down to his house and he gave me like a cup of coffee or something. And we were sitting in his kitchen a little bit. And I said, hey, Barry, you know, I got this really good finger ash off your stuff. And he says, oh, come on, that stuff, it hasn't got any buds yet. It's just no good. You, you couldn't get anything good off of my stuff. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's not good yet, you know. I said, Barry, uh, I'm telling you, this stuff's really good. Why don't you try a little of it? And he said, well, uh, I got to go downtown. I, I, I got time. So, so I said, come on, you know, just, just try it. And he took one puff, and he turned white, and he stood up holding on to the table, and his wife is sitting there waiting to go downtown, and she's looking at him. He stood up and said, whoa, uh, oh, shoo, whoa, uh, I can't have any more of that. I got to go downtown. <laughs> I went home with my $36, and my big ball of ash. I had plenty of pot of my own. I didn't need his uh -huh. pot. <laughs> but anyway... He was kind enough to hire me, and then and I was getting paid. Are you ready? Ta da! This is 1987 or something like that. Three dollars and seventy cents an hour. I worked my way up to that to mm. make the benches for Dan Aykroyd and Cindy Lauper and Mick Jagger. I kid you not. We sold hot tubs yeah. to those three individuals, <laughs> and I was the one that made the mahogany benches. In in, uh, in Dan Aykroyd's case, they were made of teak for Mick Jagger. Cindy Lauper had the redwood. Oh, you remember all of that? Of course huh? I do, especially Cindy Lauper. Oh, what a cute gal. I can visualize her sitting in my hot tub. Anyway, <laughs> why not? So, and on Dan Ackwards, I took a magic marker, and on the underside of the bench, I drew a little cartoon. It was a pair of dark glasses, a black hat, a harmonica, and a couple of musical notes. Nice. That was on Dan Ackwards' benches. Very nice. I kid you not. This is my life. The whole reason for working at this place, I wasn't getting any SSI or anything at the time. I wasn't getting any government help at all except maybe food stamps. But the whole purpose was so I could get medical insurance, so I could get my back worked on. Ah, uh, of course. Were you covered by insurance by Barry? Yeah, we made sure of that. Yeah. Barry and I did. In fact, Barry knew that he was doing this for me, and he also knew that it would probably raise the premiums of everybody in the factory. And everybody in the factory knew that it would probably raise their premiums. Mm. But they knew me. And Lovely. they liked me. Yeah. They liked me. And I liked them. Mm -hmm. These have been guys that have been chewing tobacco since they were five years old. Some of them have really bad teeth, no teeth. Cystic fibrosis was a very prevalent disease due to God knows what. Other people had been dipping dipping snuff Gosh. since five, Whew. seven years old. Oh, dear. And uh, I had to convince one to spit into the wastebasket instead of on the floor in the sawdust. He was working with me. But anyway, these people, and some of them couldn't read either. It took me a while to realize that. They're very shy about it. But one day I was so furious at some safety notice on the wall, I started reading it out loud, and then I realized there was a bunch of people gathered around me. They couldn't read. In any case, I got the medical insurance, and I got operations done on my back. Severe, serious operations. In they, West Virginia? No, over the border in Charlottesville, Virginia, at the uh -huh. University of Virginia Hospital. A man, a saintly surgeon, whose name was Richard Whitehill. A wonderfully evocative name, is it not? Richard and Whitehill, like Glastonbury. White Hill. Hmm. 
It's a very druidic name, in any case. So he mm. operated on me after telling me in exhaustive detail what he was going to do and how he was going to classify it as an emergency, I mean as an experimental operation so that he could get it done cheaper. He took out two of my vertebrae right from around the nervous, the, the spinal cord. He completely cut them out of there without nicking the cord. They were useless, I assume. They, were... they had grown like cauliflower. They had grown into a shape, trying to mm -hmm. heal themselves over all those years. Wow. And being unable to, they looked like cauliflower. Gosh. So after he cut them out of there, he took out one of my ribs on the left side, the bottom one, and he stuck that in my back. And then he took two steel pins about 16, 18 inches long, put them vertically, one on either side, wrapped them with stainless steel wire, bottom and top. This is spanning about five vertebrae in my back. Hmm. And then he packed the whole area with bone chips from the bone bank, pieces of many people's, not my own. Hmm. Many people's bones are in my back. And the whole thing looks like, on the x-ray, it looks like a, an aircraft carrier that's gotten stuck in an ice jam. <laughs> A piece of bone can be discerned, and the steel rods and the crazy-looking wire just—that's wow. my back. Could but I got it done. Still, it—it it didn't stop things deteriorating. Were you after the operation? Could you walk again? It, there was no improvement, but it didn't get worse anymore. Hmm. And it used to be when you'd slap me on the back as a friendship, it would make my whole body flip out. But that didn't happen anymore. It stopped the. De I thought it stopped the deterioration, but it didn't. It has slowed it down. Warren, you went back to work for Barry after the operation. Is that what you did? I did for a little while, I believe, but I couldn't do it. You were still. You were walking again then. I'm trying to remember. I eventually I applied for SSI and and, and got. Re got accepted, I believe, because it was 1990 in California for the winter with my sister that I, that I finally got on SSI. By this time, I was not living in that little school bus anymore. I was living with Trudy, a woman that kindly offered me a place in her house. In West Virginia? Mm -hmm. Close enough to work at Barry Glick's factory from yeah. her place. Uh -huh. Drive my own car. I see. And I continued working at Barry's for a while. That's right, I did. And drove your car there. Yeah. Before that, I'd been carpooling with uh, some hillbillies and other things. Mm -hmm. My boss let me come in, and well, he let me. I was supposed to come in on time, but I could leave any time. And often, when uh, I had a lot of aspirin and. Uh, a lot of days I would leave at 3.30 or 4, instead of 4.30, which was the quitting time. But Barry didn't mind that and at all. He was very nice about a lot of things, actually. Mm -hmm. Especially because the, the premiums for everybody else did go up after I had my operations. But anyway, mm -hmm. to telescope time a little bit, I, Trudy played the piano and had a nice upright. You would like Trudy a great deal. She's just past her 80th birthday now. Mm. Wonderful cultured woman who went to uh, Chatham College uh, 
in Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. Any case, I lived with her for about five years there, from 87, right through the period of the operations, and on to about 92. Was she a partner? Your old lady? Not exactly. It's a strange universe. And human beings are the most strange thing in it. We loved each other, and still do. But I figured I just had to leave West Virginia. Why I left, it's really difficult to say. But I had someplace I wanted to go, New Mexico back to where New Buffalo was. Mm -hmm. I even toyed with the idea of living at New Buffalo. Mm -hmm. But actually what I did was I went to live with my brother Dave, who didn't have a home either. <laughs> actually he did, let me see. He had various places, he would rent places in Santa Fe and Taos. And I, uh, I left Trudy's place and left West Virginia and moved to New Mexico in hmm. 1992. And what was Dave doing at that point for a living? He was an auto mechanic. Hmm. Really good one, too. Mostly working on Mercedes. He and his buddy, who was at New Buffalo, Justin Case. Justin Case had taught me how to take care of engines, tear them apart, fix them. Mm -hmm. Man of great talent as a mechanic. He, he and Dave were partners in this uh, Mercedes garage in Santa Fe. <laughs> really cool place. They had some other partners too, but it's mostly Dave and Justin, I think. Mm -hmm. And did some slick work, made a lot of money. What year did you say that you returned to New Mexico? 81? 92. Oh, 92. Mm -hmm. I moved Did out of the cabin up the holler about 86 because I couldn't walk good enough to get up there anymore after falling down that yeah. way. Yeah. And then I uh, worked at the hot tub factory and then living in Trudy, working at the hot tub factory and quit the hot tub factory, got on to SSI. And by then I was spending time with my sister too, I guess, in the winters. I don't know how In Hawaii? Lived. No, she lived in, in California oh. at that time. Uh, Berkeley? No. Uh, she and her husband, Nick, whom they're still married, of course, uh, they had a prune orchard, uh, 800 prune trees. They mm. had bought 15 acres with a lot of other fruit trees, some planted by Nick, and the gigantic walnut tree, the biggest walnut tree I've ever seen. It regularly produced three or four bushels of nuts. Mm. Delicious, too. In any case, uh, I moved out of West Virginia to New Mexico in 92. I went for a gathering nearby in Colorado, and then it was an easy shift to go down to Taos where Brother Dave was living mm -hmm. and live with Dave who was living with Alfred Hobbs at the time. How was your walking at that point? 
I could walk. Mm-hmm. I used a, a walking stick. I made walking sticks at the hot tub factory. We made 40 or 50 of them. Mm. I'd cut a spiral design in it. With a nice. And I used teak and mahogany sometimes. I was using a mahogany stick at that time, I think. Mm-hmm. And then I gradually had to use two sticks, and then I gradually had to get into a wheelchair about the year 2000, approximately. By then, I was already living on my own land out on the Mesa. When I first got to Taos, I lived with Dave, and then mm-hmm. he was homeless or something, or I forget what happened, but I had to... I lived at uh, several different places. I got evicted from one on New Year's Eve. <laughs> Half an hour after midnight, the landlord shows up and says, okay, you're at, you're in violation now. you got to get out right now. Wow, violation of what? I had uh, rent, you know, rent is due. The rent was overdue. How but much overdue? 30 minutes when he showed up. 30 minutes? Yeah. Oh, my. It was New Year's Eve, I'm telling you. Uh, you know, we, midnight had just passed, and I didn't hadn't sent him the rent, so he shows up and says, I'm going to call the sheriff right now if you don't get out. I knew that he didn't have the law on his side, but on the other hand, you know, when you're penniless, and I had a guest or two, one of whom was wearing a tuxedo. <laughs> we are just sitting there sipping wine or something or other. I said, well, I'll get out. I'll get out tomorrow. He said, no, you're getting out tonight. Oh, dear. So um, I was rooming with a black guy named Gene White. <laughs> oh, maybe it was Jay Peel. And why, uh, anyway, I, he, uh, we found a place. Uh, it was a, uh, a trailer that uh, was unoccupied but infested with rats. Oh, dear. And there was rat shit everywhere in it. And there was hard, there was a tin little cheap wood stove. And I moved in with these two black guys who didn't have any money but were able-bodied so they could help me get firewood and stuff. And by this time, I was getting an SSI. So I was able to buy a load of firewood from somebody. And we moved in at, at 2.33 in the morning. Oh, my God. To this little place and started shoveling the rat shit into the stove to burn it up. All that in the night? You did all that? Gosh. And then in the morning, I went back to get the rest of my stuff, such as my belt sander that I used to make the walking sticks, and uh, also my mattress and one or two other things that we didn't take in the middle of the night. And he changed the lock. Couldn't get in the door. I knew you were going to say that. J.P.O. climbed up on the roof and got into an upstairs window and managed to drag my mattress out of there. Mm-hmm. But when we got, when he got down inside and we went into the shed where my belt sander had been, he had taken the belt sander off the, the base I had built it on in the middle of the night. He must have done this and yeah. taken it on and stolen my belt sander. Yeah. So I moved into several places. Finally, I moved into this crazy crazy boarding house it was an old old adobe house with six bedrooms and each of the bedrooms was rented out by the landlady who was a transsexual she was part man and part woman mm-hmm. and she had she was a great big woman with great big tits but she had to shave every day and black beard and she, irene was her name and she had the soul of a little girl 
She had what? The soul of a little oh, girl. Mm -hmm. She really liked little girly stuff. What a strange. And she had this boyfriend who was much, one third her size and laughed a lot and said, I am, what's your name? I am Bananas Ortega. <laughs> bananas. <laughs> he could play guitar. Mm -hmm. Played a couple of Mexican songs, and I learned a couple. Of, and Celito Lindo was one of them. So mm -hmm. I think he did that. Me and Bananas would play. <laughs> but that was crazy, because there was three migrant workers in one of the bedrooms. There was an old Vietnam vet who was coughing his lungs out in another mm -hmm. room. There was a crazy woman that took in every dog in sight, and she had like eight dogs chained up outside in the snow. Oh my. And she took in another guy who had three dogs, and they were oh. all dog people taking oh no. dogs. And they had two, way too many dogs. And, 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 and oh. Irene had pet dogs, too, some of which were chained outside and some of which came inside. So the place was in, had about 12 dogs or so. Good Lord. Huh. That, didn't, that lasted about a winter, and then I got land by buying it from two ravens. What was first? What was the landlady's name again at that? Irene. Irene. Irene was her name. When she had some minor infraction, they didn't know what jail to take her to. The men's or the women's. <laughs> so they ended up just hiring her to sweep up the jail on weekends. <laughs> I think the men's jail. But uh, <laughs> she was a case. How long did you last at that place? About six months or six more. Months. I had no other recourse, really. There was no place else. I don't know what Dave was doing at that How'd time. How'd you spend your time? Mostly making these strange creations out of sticks. I, I constructed a sort of a spider web in my room just for nothing, like I'd done in college and prep school, just for fun. And then I, I had I used to make these creations out of sticks and rubber bands that expand and change. They're geometrical. I call them flexahedra. My cousin David Orr showed me how to make one, and I took his design and designed a dozen or more different shapes. Mm -hmm. Like they're they're like collapsing stars. If you grab two edges of them, you can flex the whole thing and make it change shape. Constructed mm -hmm. bamboo skewers and rubber oh. bands and glue, mm -hmm. all flexible. I even had a bunch that would make either a six-point star, and then you push them six points and you get an eight-point star. Oh. And then if you hold it a certain way, you can make it into a bundle of sticks and fold the whole thing up into a bundle of sticks. And then you can flip it open and flex it again. I was making these things and designing them. I did a lot of that that winter. Mm -hmm. What'd you do with them when you finished them? Nothing. Mm -hmm. They all rotted. The rubber bands only lasted about a year, and I never figured out what my cousin David Orr tells me I should have done all along to take aquarium hose and cut it into little O-rings and use that to, to, to tie the sticks together, and then they'd last longer. Mm -hmm. But I was too lazy to do that. So all those designs, they just rotted away, no doubt. Did you play music in that period? Not hardly at all. There was one occasion I did, I remember. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what about old friends in the area? Did you look up Rick and Terry? Nope. Llama Mountain was too far for me to go. In my oh, sure, that's right. right. That's where it's they were. Way uphill. God damn oh, it. Yeah. It's hard on a... A lot of cars like mine could barely even make it up there. Yeah. And, uh, yep. No, and I didn't. Did I go to New Buffalo? I just lived in I, I was down. I, I was down and out. I didn't have money to spare for anything. 
I was paying $45 a week. Um, that was what Irene wanted. So this is between 92 and when you bought land in 2000, you were talking? 94. 94. It was only a couple of years. I bought the land from a guy named Two Ravens. Recently died. My best buddy probably among the New Mexico people, him and Tony. In any case, I, uh, I got the land from Two Ravens for $400. I got a quarter acre lot. Turns out that when we went to find the lot, we located it in the wrong place. So the house that I built <laughs> is on a land that doesn't technically belong to me. Yeah. It doesn't belong to anybody else either because it's a bankrupt corporation. Oh. The developers went out of business 40 right. years ago or something. Uh-huh. <laughs> I see. It's a really strange situation. Yeah. But anyway, the land out there is so primitive and inhabited by crazy hippies that, that it is it not under much demand, which is a very good thing. I hope they never pave the road or stuff, but they might. Yeah, it's a rough road. Well, you'll risk you, give up. 